Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a chaplain, a professor, a speaker, and a writer, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. So on this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, cultural issues, church life, pastoral leadership, and ethics, as well as other relevant matters to help you lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today we are going to be talking about calling, gifting, and leadership. So as leaders, we have the responsibility to identify and equip other leaders for service. But the question is often asked, how do you know what to look for in potential leaders? Other times, leaders themselves get frustrated because they may sense that they're in the wrong role or haven't been released to really serve the way that God has designed them. So today, what we want to do is dissect leadership, calling, gifting, and your capacity to lead so that they can serve better, so we can serve better, really, and help others to serve better, all for the glory of God. So, Aaron, can you start us off by outlining your goals for today's show? Sure. As leaders, we want the best for other people, and we obviously want the best for ourselves, not in some carnal, selfish way, but I want to be everything God has designed me to be, and I want those under my stewardship to be the best that they can be. So this show is not going to be be about navel gazing. We're not going to spend too much time looking inward, but we do need to spend some time looking inward to try to determine what God's best plan is for us as leaders. And the reality is the Bible speaks about the differences between people. People have different calls. People have different gift sets. People have different personalities. We see that reflected in the great characters of, of Scripture. And we also just have different personalities. So in the early years of my leadership as a, as a church leader, I think my educational processes focused primarily upon skill sets, helping me to learn the basic skills that I needed to function as a pastor and helping me to think through the tasks that I needed to do to be quote unquote successful in ministry, but I'm not sure I was given very much feedback or input on how I was wired. So not every pastor is the same, not every deacon's the same, not every youth leader's the same, not every church member's the same. We're different. And I'm not sure we spent a lot of time thinking through that. And so there may have been times when I was given assignments or tasks that weren't really suitable to my makeup or even early on when I may have made the mistake of appointing people or asking people to serve in areas that weren't really suitable for their makeup. And the, re- the result of that can be frustration or disappointment, but more importantly, a lack of fruit. Yep. So this show is not meant to judge or pigeonhole people, but to help people think through who are you? How did God uniquely design and equip you for ministry? Now we do change. With time, as we age, we add to our skill sets. We maybe focus in a little bit. Our circumstances may change. Our change, our ministry context may change. So I don't want to draw these lines super bold to the point that someone thinks I can only ever do A and I can never possibly do B. But I do want to help people avoid trying to be someone they're not. I often say this to young men, especially that are thinking about pastoral work. So this show is for more than just pastors, but I I speak to men who are interested in pastoral work, and I I, I encourage them to think through, please don't go into pastoral ministry just because you want to be like your favorite pastor or you think you're something you're not. Make sure that you've received lots of input. Make sure that you've had lots of experience testing, experimenting with different areas of ministry to see how God has wired you get lots of feedback because the last thing you want to do is spend your years frustrated pursuing an area of leadership that God has not designed for you. So it is helpful, I think, for us to know our strengths and our weaknesses. Mm -hmm. It's helpful for us to think about our calling. It's helpful for us to think about our relational approach, always be open to change and develop, but to understand that our basic personality really doesn't change. And to find an area of ministry in your church or in the church, the various church ministries and culture that is suitable for you. So it's helpful for leaders to also take those self-assessment skills 
and apply them to others that they may be approaching and asking to serve in an area of ministry. So let's say you're looking for someone to serve a role as a small group leader, as a Sunday school teacher, as a deacon, as an elder, as a music leader, as a facility person, whatever it might be. It's helpful for you to to assess with them what what is their unique contribution to the kingdom of God. And it may be that some people are called to positions of prominence and other people are called to positions that are more obscure, but in the eyes of God, both are extremely important and we need to honor both. We want to help people to function at their max. I, I know it may not be politically correct to say this because of the whole carbon debate, but I'll use this analogy. We want people to function on all eight cylinders, right? We want people to really be able to progress in ministry and be useful to the Lord. So that's what we want to talk about. I was going to say, it's actually eight cells now, all eight <laughs> cells. Of their I, I wasn't Twitter. really sure how we're supposed to frame that <laughs> exactly. up. Exactly. So, okay, can you give us the categories, the basic categories of leadership, just a summary of them that we need to think about and that we'll be discussing today? Sure. Yeah, so I want to talk about our creational call, just to remind us from the Word of God what the basic purpose of our existence is. That's going to be the foundation for everything else. Talk a little bit about skill sets. There are certain skills a person can learn and develop that are important. Then I want to talk about the Christian's call in uh, in particular as it relates to ministry and service. Talk a bit about our spiritual gifts. That's an important conversation to have to understand how God has uniquely wired you to serve him, to build up his church and win people to Christ. And then we're going to end with I think what will be an interesting conversation about capacity. A lot of people don't think about capacity, but we each have capacity limits. And if you wanna be fruitful and not frustrated, you'll know what your capacity is and you'll plug yourself into an area where you can serve again on all eight cylinders without being frustrated or frustrating those around you. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's start out with the creation call. Walk us through that one. So in Genesis chapter one, verse 26, when God created us, the word of God says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, the hour there is in reference to the plural of majesty, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So if you think of the the whole of the planet, physical, tangible, created, space God has given under his ultimate supremacy dominion to humanity. And that is the basic call that God has placed upon humanity as a whole to have dominion. Now, this is important. Everything we do should be considered a stewardship. We err when we think of our ministry, our tasks, our family, our possessions as ownership. Everything we do from a biblical theological perspective in service is in service to the king of kings. We don't own it, we steward it. Now, of course, we know this has been corrupted by the fall, Genesis chapter three, but it's not just a call for Christians. This is a call for all men, all women. Like it or not, whether you're a Christian or not, God is the owner and you are merely a steward. Christians obviously are learning to steward the world properly, redemptively under Christ, the unbeliever generally doesn't get that and is certainly failing in that regard. But I emphasize this because there's a difference between, let's say, the service that a human being offers and the service that a bumblebee or a honeybee offers. A honeybee is useful in that it produces honey for our consumption. Beef cattle are useful in that they produce beef for our consumption. Laying, laying hens are useful in that they produce eggs for our consumption. They have a utilitarian purpose. I mean, they're beautiful, they reflect the creativity of God, but they essentially have a, have a utilitarian function for our benefit. While human beings are not animals, we are made in the imago dei, we think, we cultivate, we create, we reflect the image of God. And so when we are considering people for leadership, we don't appoint them to leadership like we would like we would perhaps uh, appoint a hen to lay eggs for us. We don't treat people like animals. We don't treat people merely for what they can produce. If your chicken is not laying eggs, it's probably going into the soup pot. 
If your cow is not producing milk or producing a calf for you every year, it's going to the abattoir. We don't treat human beings like that. So it's important when we talk about gifts, call, skills, just to pause for a moment and remind ourselves as leaders, we're not treating people in a utilitarian way. It's not like this super well-managed, well-organized machine in the life of the church where if you're not producing, you're out, or if you're not producing to your max, you're, you're of no value to us. We don't treat people as machines merely looking for results. We affirm the sacredness of human life, and we always treat people with dignity and respect, regardless of whether we would consider them low-functioning, moderately functioning, or high-functioning. But here's where this gets very practical. This is where this theological point gets very practical. On one hand, we want to avoid the pitfall of treating people as a means to an end. Sometimes people are, if you're a high-functioning leader, and many of you that are listening are, it's possible to fall into the trap of merely treating people as a means to an end. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to do that, especially in larger churches, large seminaries, large universities, larger organizations. You're not doing the job, you're out. We, we don't do that. We're very careful not to treat people as a means to an end because they're not honeybees. They're not rabbits. They're not beef cattle. They're not there for the utilitarian purpose. But at the same time, we need to avoid the pitfall of merely assigning people to an area of service, a task, giving them duties, because, well, they've decided they want to serve in position X, Y, Z. Mm -hmm. It's just it's just what I want to do. No, that you need to consider, like, is that what God has designed you for? Are you actually gifted in that area? Do you have the commensurate skills? Are you, uh, in a sense, empowered by the Spirit of God? So we don't, we don't, we, we can be discriminate, and I use that word in a positive way. We can be thoughtful. We mm -hmm. can say to someone, you know, I know you want to preach, but the elders of the church have deliberated, and we do not believe that's your giftedness. Oh, I'd love to be a counselor. Well, kindly, we've noticed that when people are around you, they're always discouraged, <laughs> or whatever it might be. So there's, there's no, we don't treat people in a utilitarian way, nor do we just randomly and haphazardly appoint folks to leadership because they want to. Our goal always comes back to a theology of stewardship. Mm -hmm. We want to position people to maximize their stewardship. Chris, as I assess you, I want you to maximize your stewardship. Our goal is not just to fulfill our objectives as a church. Our goal is to fulfill God's objectives, and we want to help one another discern what are God's objectives for his church, they're clearly laid out in his word, and what are God's unique objectives for the individual. So we're always balancing those two things. So here's where we have our creational call affecting our whole mindset mm -hmm. in terms of how we appoint and assign people or affirm people to positions of influence. Yep. That's a very good foundation. So now we want to move and talk about skills. So what are they, skills, and how do you say that they differ from other categories that we're going to discuss? I think the reason why I want to chat about this is in part to contrast them with spiritual gifts. But at the same time, I think skills in and of themselves are a benefit and a blessing that we should cultivate in our lives. So when I think of skills, I think of those things that can be taught, that can be learned by watching other people do them, by practice through various educational processes, through apprenticeships, man, even through YouTube videos, the things you can learn that you didn't previously know. Now, some of these skills people could debate, well, are they more innate? Are they given to us by God? Are they things we can cultivate? Well, probably a little bit of each. Mm -hmm. Some of the skills we have may be in a seminal form given to us by God, but God, but then cultivated. For, for instance, some people structurally are built to run fast. But if they never practice the skill, they're never going to be good runners. Mm -hmm. But some are built the, the way their body is shaped, the size of their body, the shape of maybe their joints, the curvature of the foot, their um, muscle mass, et cetera, the size of their hearts. They're built to run. Some people have unusual strength. We think of Samson had unusual strength. Some people might be more fertile than others. 
Some people might have better memories or be more intelligent or be more beautiful or more handsome. In the word of God, we have differences. People aren't all framed up as uh, stormtroopers. You know, the stormtroopers in the old Star Wars films, they all look the same. The white helmet, the white suits, you couldn't tell one from the next. Humans aren't like that. There's diversity in humanity. Samson was strong. Daniel had a sharp mind. Sarah was beautiful, even into her old age. She was still often mistaken for a young woman. Absalom had a lot of hair. Asahel in 2 Samuel 2.18 was an extremely fast runner. Unfortunately, he lost his life for it. Some of these things are just given to us by God. They're genetic. People are going to be born with different body shapes, different mental capacities. There's nothing innately right or wrong about those things. Some, some of the things, though, that we know are more natural, but there's, it's because we're complex creatures, it's, it's difficult to determine. Am I, do I have a natural bent towards mathematics because my parents talked a lot about it, or do I just have a mathematical mind? Mm-hmm. Do I have a natural bent towards the arts because that was part of our family culture, or is that somehow innate? And, it, and again, it's probably a bit of both, but we can disagree on that. It doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. But here's the reality. No skill really becomes useful and fully developed without outside influence and input. So if we're an artist, we need access to material to create our art. Mm-hmm. We need access to ideas often, or at least our ideas are stimulated by outside input, outside stimuli. And there's many different skill sets we can learn that can be useful to the kingdom of God that aren't necessarily directly a result of our conversion. Mm. They may be things that we've had prior to our conversion. So you could have two heart surgeons. One is a Christian, one's a non-Christian. The non-Christian might be a better heart surgeon because they've been doing it for 20 more years because they have better dexterity because they have a better understanding of human biology. And if you're on the table requiring heart surgery and you get to pick, you're probably gonna pick the one that doesn't hold to your faith system if they're just better operating on the heart. Mm -hmm. It's not directly tied to their spirituality. You might find a non-Christian that's a better coppersmith than a Christian. But what should be said about Christians in the area of skill sets is what, what should differentiate a Christian from a non-Christian is that we always aim for excellence. We always aim for excellence. We're never content with being mediocre. Mm -hmm. And we do it solely Deo Gloria. We do it for God's glory alone. That is our motive. And in that respect, we can max out, if you think of it this way, we can max out our capacity in an an area of skill to a greater degree than a non-Christian can. So, it, maybe if we think of it um, in terms of percentages, let's just say running. Let's suppose that if you graded all human runners throughout history from one to 100, 100 being the fastest, most efficient runner that's ever lived, mm-hmm. and then you're assessed on that scale and you determine that my top end is at the 60 mark. I can never go past 60, but I'm functioning at 40. But because I wanna aim for excellence and I wanna glorify God, I'm gonna push myself to get to 60. Why? Not for the trophy, not for the applause, not for the acclaim of men, but because I wanna honor God with my body. God has given me speed. And then you might have an unbeliever who's, who can get to 80, but they only bother getting to 70 because that's all it takes to win the trophy. They're not really striving striving for excellence to steward their lives to the glory of God. They just want to beat other people. So the motive is different. Mm -hmm. And Christians should be ever learning and developing their skills for the glory and honor of God. Now, there's a practical dimension to this as well. We live in a society that is what we would call pillarized. So think of a bunch of pillars, maybe on on a graph. And we have those that are experts in, and then you name the discipline, experts in the trade, excellence in architecture, excellence in dance, experts, I should say, in music, experts in this, experts in that, professionals, 
I mean, we we tend to live in a culture that certifies almost everything. You got to be certified as a plumber. You got to be certified as an electrician. You got to be certified to give a massage. You got to be certified, 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 certified. And there's there's some sense sensibility to that on a certain limited level. But when we certify everything, we pillarize society. And what happens is you have people that are experts in this pillar. So I'm an expert in agriculture. I'm an expert in dance. I'm an expert in computer science. And that's what I do. And that's all I do. It's like, yeah, but have you ever thought about maybe migrating into another pillar, learning another skills? And unfortunately, many people have great skills in one pillar, but they're limited in all others. And it actually hinders their ability to function in life. They have to hire people to do everything. They have to consult other experts to do everything. And there, there's actually a benefit, a, 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 some wisdom in, yeah, focusing on certain things that God has really gifted you for, but also being a person that's more free and more useful by learning, constantly learning other skills. So people sometimes tease me for this. But I love learning new things. I love it. I, I, I always want to grow and develop in as many areas of life as I can. In diverse areas, I, I've spent time uh, learning to paint, like oil paint. I've done acrylic painting. I've done sculpting. I've, I'm not good at it at all, but I, I, I play a little bit of the guitar. I've learned aspects of almost every trade. I have an interest in in history. I have an interest in martial arts. I have an interest in farming. I I even took a flying lesson once. I became a dive master, scuba diving. Now, I, I, re, I uh, rebuilt a couple of old trucks. These are not things that I'm a, an expert in necessarily, but it's good to, to have a, a broad uh, uh array of interest because it helps you to see the world differently, it helps you to relate to people. One skill builds on another skill. It helps you to relate to a broad, broader variety of people. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be good at any of that. You might be a, a yellow belt, but at least you got a yellow belt and whatever jujitsu. Just having a little bit of experience in a lot of things benefits you. And then some things you're obviously going to become better at than others. And we do these not just to fill our minds with truth. But this is what Solomon did. Solomon's wisdom wasn't in raw theology. In fact, he, he kind of blew it in some of those areas. But people would come and they would listen to Solomon's wisdom on his observations of life, justice. He was called upon to adjudicate at times, and he was good at it. You remember the whole instance of the two women that had the baby and one died, and they're trying to figure out which child is which mother this child belongs to, and he, he made this incredible judgment because he'd observed human behavior. Mm -hmm. He knew something about motherhood. He'd actually observed women and their babies and understood something about motherhood, and that allowed him to adjudicate in that case and to determine who the true mother was and who the, the pretender was. He he was able to lecture on animal life, the the way that animal, animal husbandry, we call it, the way animals behave. His his pro proverbs, most of the proverbs written by by Solomon, not all of them, but most of them, speak of uh, his observations of people around dinner tables, his observations of the way people ate, his observations of uh, justice, his observations of architecture. He had a broad array of information in his head, and this helped him. So I would encourage people to grow in your skills. And you might be thinking, how does this relate? Well, we don't serve in ministry simply for the paycheck. In fact, we don't serve for the paycheck, period. The paycheck comes behind us to support us. You shouldn't be pursuing ministry for the paycheck or the applause or the personal fulfillment. This is not the main role. We do it for the glory of God. And how in the world can you really ever figure out how God has wired you or how he wants to uniquely use you. If you just stay in one little pillar, and this is all I do. So those are skills. Believers have them. Non-believers have them. We do them with excellence, not perfection. Yep. We do them to the glory of God, not the glory of self. 
And we want to understand God's world better, and so it's important for us to grow in our skill sets. And it will bless us, and it will bless others somewhere along the line. Mm -hmm. One of the things I've noticed as well with that um, exploring vast amounts of information in different pillars is that actually it's all tied together as well, right? So you learn one thing, it actually informs the way you approach a subject in a different pillar. Absolutely. it's God is the the creator of everything. And so we can see his handiwork in everything. And when humans cultivate creation, when they garden, when they raise animals, when they develop technologies, we're reflecting the Imago Dei, the creativity of God, and all of it has a, a common bond or common link in him. So when we are learning about the intricacies of human technology developed by past generations, we see aspects of design in it. And there's an appreciation for how God has used past generations for that. When we gaze at a beautiful work of art, there's a sense in which we see the Imago Dei being reflected in that beautiful piece of art. When we see a piece of art that is blasphemous, we see how the corruption of God's image uh, is, is, ref is reflected, is distorted in non-creational art, art that um, takes people away from God's creation that is anti-redemptive. So it's all, it is all integrated. Mm -hmm. And, and, a, and a, a skillful, a wise person that wants to grow as a leader will, for the glory of God and the sake of influencing other people, get out of their pillar. They will learn as much as they can about all of life. There's only an upside to that. There's no downside to it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so our next category is in spiritual gifts. Christians talk a lot about spiritual gifts, and there's obviously, we could spend multiple uh, podcasts talking about it, but could you give us a summary of spiritual gifts and then also explain how we discover them? So this is really critical. You need to know what your spiritual gift or gifts are as soon after your conversion as possible, and then focus on those gifts that God has given to you and find places and ways and means to use those to glorify God. And if you do that, you will experience fruitfulness and you will experience a sense of fulfillment. So one of the seminal passages is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 through 11. And this is what it says. As each, speaking to the church, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. So there's the trajectory of Christian leadership, service. You don't need to allow other people to treat you like a slave, but we serve other people as good stewards. Aha, there's that creational word, as good stewards of God's varied grace. So it differs from person to person. We don't, we're not all the same. Whoever speaks, here's some examples, as one who speaks the oracles of God. Some people have verbal skills. What are you using them for? To blaspheme? To gossip? To slander? To manipulate? or to use them to speak the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. There's many opportunities for service in the church. We offer people that cold glass of water in Jesus' name. We minister to the sick. We counsel. We direct. We teach theology. Lots of opportunities to serve in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's the Soli Deo Gloria. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So here we have spiritual gifts. There's several places. People can look them up on their own time. There's several places in the New Testament where there are lists of spiritual gifts. They're not all the same. You got to kind of piece them all together. But there's different lists in the New Testament. Here we have a couple speaking gifts service gifts, where people are gifted with something at their conversion, God grants you, in seed form, an ability endowed by God to build up his church. So let's talk about speaking gifts. Some people have the skill of speaking. They teach mathematics in a university, but they're not regenerate. That's a skill. It may be granted to them in their conception on some in some foundational way by God, but if it's not being used to honor and glorify God, and it, it can't be because they're not born again, 
then that's a skill set. A gift is a person who has the ability to teach and instruct people in the Word of God. So there's nothing wrong with being aware of what your gift is and using it. So I have teaching gifts. And yet when I was in grade eight, I was terrified to give a public speech. Mm. September, teacher gives us our syllabus, says in November, you're giving a speech. Those are like the worst two months of my life because I was terrified to give a speech. The speech was like a minute, mm -hmm. but I was terrified to give a speech. Believe it or not, I don't actually enjoy public speaking even today unless it's teaching and preaching. People say, oh, can you MC our wedding? I'd rather not. Mm. Could you just speak on such and such a subject in public? I'd rather not. So I believe my gift of preaching and teaching is a spiritual gift, not something that's innate. Now, I know how to put words together, but I don't know, if I wasn't a preacher or teacher, I don't think I would go into a career or a vocation where I was just speaking. I don't think I would do that. So there's a difference between a spiritual gift, just because you're a, you have this skill of teaching doesn't mean you're gonna make a good preacher, and just because you may be spiritually gifted as a preacher doesn't mean you're gonna make a good teacher in some other subject, but, that's an example of a differentiation between uh, a spiritual gift and a skill. The spiritual gift must always build up the body of Christ, always. The skill set may actually tear down the body of Christ. False teachers, false ideologies, blasphemers. You have some great orators. From what I understand in his time, Hitler was a good orator. He was very convincing. The Church of Jesus Christ was not built up through Adolf Hitler's life. Mm -hmm. It was attacked. Christians were put to death. Other people's lives were destroyed. Someone can have oratory gifts. They're not spiritual gifts. Mm -hmm. They're different things. So how does a person, this is a question that I'm, I've been asked many times, how do I know what my spiritual gift is? I, I, I got saved last year. I've been converted to Christ. How do I know what my spiritual gift is? Or you have the assignment of finding a new ministry leader to fill an area of service in the church. Mm -hmm. How do I know who to pick, who to appoint to that role? All right, here's some wisdom that was given to me that I, I will pass on and I think it's really helpful. When you're a new believer, serve widely in the life of the church. A little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there. Someone asks you to do something, your default answer should be, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. I'll serve in the nursery, I'll sweep, I'll mop, I'll give my testimony. You really want me to lead music? I'll try. Yeah. You, you serve in various areas. You want me to administrate? Sure, you want me to organize an event? I'll do it. You serve here, there, here, there, and then you pay attention for three things, okay? Three things. Number one, this is not in order of importance, but it's probably the first thing you're gonna become aware of. Mm -hmm. Am I in a humble way charged up by my service? I'm not talking about, do I feel better my, about myself because I'm in the limelight? Not that. But I wanna serve Christ, I have a humble spirit. Do I feel energized when I teach, when I serve, when I administrate, when I counsel? Do I feel a certain internal testimony from the Holy Spirit, an internal witness? Or is it like, man, every time I do that, I just feel absolutely depleted. I feel unsure of myself. I, it's exhausting, it's just not me. So look for that internal witness from the Holy Spirit. If it charges your battery, that may mean, doesn't necessarily mean, but it may mean that's an indication of your spiritual gift. Mm. Secondly, Am I bearing fruit? Now, fruit, fruitfulness in ministry is hard to measure at times. Mm -hmm. It takes discernment. So it's not like when I preach a sermon, I then have a spreadsheet that says X number of people got saved, X number of people were convicted, X number of people were rebuked, X number of people were built up. I get very, very, very little feedback in my public ministry. I say this to people, they're surprised. I could preach in front of a thousand people and maybe get one at the most two comments a week. The more you're, the more you're experienced as a preacher, the less feedback you get. Mm -hmm. uh, the young, the guy that preaches his first sermon gets a lot of likes, a lot of comments, a lot of feedback. When you've been doing it for a while, people, most people rarely ever say anything to you about your 
sermons, your public ministry. It's the same in all areas of ministry. If you're the facility guy in your church, you're mopping up, and you're just like, am I doing a good job? No one said anything lately. Welcome to the club. Yeah. If you're a youth leader, uh, you are an administrator in the church, for whatever reason, people give very little feedback if you're doing a good job. <laughs> so you have to discern, yep. is this bearing fruit? And part of that is through longevity. Are, are people listening? Is there's Do they seem to be being built up? Are people leaving more like Christ than when they came in? Does it seem like I'm aiding and making life easier for other people? If if you, if you're doing something very tangible, you're setting up chairs in your church. You're you're cooking food. Is there a sense in which it's facilitating the broader efforts of the church? So is it bearing fruit? Mm-hmm. God is not going to give you a spiritual gift, call you to use it, and then there's no there's no result. There's no spiritual fruit. There's going to be ebbs and flows, highs and lows. The prophets of old experienced that, but even in the lows, there was maybe rebuke or judgment being given out. So look for fruitfulness. And the third one, this is really important, feedback. Feedback. Have other Christians affirmed your ministry? Have they affirmed it? You may have to ask them. Okay, I want your honest feedback. I just preached. What'd you think? I just organized this event. What's your feedback? What did you honestly think? Mm-hmm. you were advocating for me in a counseling session. How did you think I did? I want your honest feedback. What you might discover is that you're in the wrong place. And when I have, especially in the area of pastoral leadership, because pastoral leadership is, on one hand, the most awesome thing you can do in life and the absolute hardest thing you can do in life. So when young men are like, oh, I want to, I went to a conference. I heard a preacher. It looks great. Like I'd love to do that. Uh, hey, let's talk about calling to pastoral leadership. I almost want to deflate their balloon before I inflate it because I want them to realize, young man, this is hard. Harder than you think. Harder than you can possibly imagine times 10 over the long haul. It's very difficult. And if God has not equipped you for it, you will fail. You will not endure mm-hmm. You'll be yep. you'll be in a long string of guys that started and stopped, started and stopped, started and failed. So have you been affirmed? Mm-hmm. Oh, but I really, really, really want to preach. But have you been affirmed? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'd love to be a counselor, but have you been affirmed? I want to be an apologist. I love debating, but have you been affirmed? I'd love mm-hmm. to work with the young people of the church, but have you been affirmed? Mm-hmm. I'd love to be an, an administrator, a manager, but have you been affirmed? If you haven't been affirmed, you need to think twice. Now, the only time that wouldn't apply is if you're on an island planting a church by yourself and you're the only Christian. Yeah. So have you been affirmed? Now, here's some warnings I also want to issue with regard to spiritual gifts. And I, I brought along five of them. The first is this. Never forget who gifted you. Never forget who gifted you. Every time you use your spiritual gifts, thank God for the privilege of being useful to him. It's not about you, it's about him. Number two, be open-handed about your gifts rather than close-fisted. See your gifts as a stewardship that you will one day be held accountable for. James 3.1, those who teach, you can be held to account, gentlemen. You're gonna be held to account. They're not yours to keep, they're from God, so you're gonna be accountable for them. Number three, openly and publicly praise God when your gifts bear fruit for him. Let people know, point people away from yourself mm-hmm. and toward God. Okay, thanks, I appreciate the encouragement. appreciate the fact you appreciated that sermon, but point people to God, yep. right? Point people to God. And when you see the results or receive an encouragement for your gifts, immediately in your mind, just thank God for them. We need to encourage each other. We're not so super spiritual. Oh, Chris doesn't need encouragement. He gets his encouragement from God. No, I need to encourage you. Mm-hmm. We need encouragement, but in ourselves, we point people to God. Number four, remember where you came from. Recall to mind the years before your conversion or early on in your Christian journey when you weren't as gifted, mm-hmm. when your gifts weren't as developed, and show patience for others that are in the process. Here's one of the temptations. I was talking to one of my elders recently, and he made a comment that I thought was quite helpful. So because I've been a pastor for 30 years, 
and have lots of schooling and lots of experience and lots of stories to tell, when younger guys are showing an interest, I, I'll be honest with you, sometimes I feel like pushing them away because I want to protect them from the pain of it. Like, oh, don't do this, dude. <laughs> but the reality is I need to remind myself I was young once too, mm-hmm. and people trusted me and entrusted responsibility to me. And we often learn by making mistakes and by experience. So we want to protect people from themselves if they are pursuing a ministry they're not gifted for. But at the same time, gifts develop over time. Mm-hmm. Your first sermon, your first counseling session, your first event, the first time you make food for a big event, it's not gonna be the same of the same caliber as the 100th time you do it or the 500th time you do it. So gifts do develop over time. We would expect someone that's preached 8,000 times to be mildly better than someone that's preached their third sermon. So we need to, we need to uh, be realistic mm-hmm. about, about things. And f- fifth, model a ministry mindset. Every time we grow prideful, angry, or impatient with immature people. Mm-hmm. We need to subconsciously, we're actually subconsciously communicating a false view of, of giftedness. Gifts don't exist to feed our contentment. Gifts don't exist to feed our contentment. That's not what they're for. I, I emphasize this because I have this sneaky suspicion I'll, I'll use preaching as an example because I think it's quite common. Guys would be like, I want to preach. Why? Because they love theology. They feel good about communicating great heavenly thoughts. They feel good about putting their knowledge on display. They feel good about being up front of people. Those should be the last things in your mind. If you If you want to preach because you love getting up in front of people and talking, please spare everyone. Please spare everyone your ego. Every sermon, every lesson, every podcast, every song you write, there should always be a little bit of reluctance in there, knowing that you are a weak, broken pot. Some reluctance. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be some humility. Now, on the other hand, when we serve without applause, and we often do, we need to exercise patience, check our pride, make sure that we're not in it for self. And point people to God. God God is glorified and the church is strengthened as he gifts us for ministry service. Don't think too highly of yourself. Eventually you're going to be dead and in a coffin. Serve the Lord to the best of your abilities. Don't Don't compare yourself to other people. That's exhausting. Don't compare yourself to other people. Max out your abilities, max out your giftedness, and let God use you as he sees fit. So those are just some thoughts I have in the area of spiritual giftedness. Yeah. To your your mentioning of remember where you came from, one of the best things I have and also the worst things is my first sermon and recorded on MP3. <laughs> so it's it's interesting. Have I, have I heard that one? I don't know if you have. Was that the one <laughs> you preached on the motherhood and femininity no, of God? Yeah, that wasn't me. <laughs> no, but I remember I preached it on Genesis 6 and talking about the Nephilim. Oh. <laughs> like, what was I thinking? <laughs> Anyways, quite something. What was the application? (laughs) Exactly. Oh, man. Anyways, quite something, but uh, humbling at the same time. Okay, let's talk about calling because that one can be confusing. What Mm. is that about? Well, we often talk about a call to ministry, and and I I don't want to over-dramatize this point, and I don't want to over-mysticize this point because I think the Bible does indicate that there's a certain call placed on um, certain people, especially to to bear office in the church or to preach publicly. But I don't want to emphasize to the point that, you know, the the elders have this special profound calling and everyone else is just sort of a a lesser believer. So I want to, I want to bring this point out in front of people, but I want, I don't want to highlight it to the point that everyone else feels like I don't have a call. Cause I think we all have a, a certain call. And we're not talking about effectual call here. So in our salvation, in our conversion, there's an effectual call where God effects his plan upon our lives and we are saved. We're not talking about that kind of an effectual call or the call just to live holy lives in general. That's also a call. So there's an effectual call. There's a call to all believers to live for Christ, to conform ourselves to Christ. 
I'm speaking more about God's call or appointment, if you will. Mm. His appointment to vocation, to service, and to the, the offices of the church. So in the Bible, we're taught that God calls us to salvation, but when he calls us to salvation, he doesn't necessarily change our vocation, mm-hmm. and he doesn't necessarily change our immediate circumstances. But we are called to use our vocation and our circumstances, even if they're the same post-conversion as they were pre-conversion for God's glory. Mm-hmm. I'll point our listeners to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 20, 20 and following, where the Bible says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. There's this interesting contrast there. Let's say when you get saved, you're a slave. Be the best slave you can possibly be. Mm-hmm. Now, pursue your freedom if you can get it, but know you're freed in Christ. Mm-hmm. Likewise, if you, when you were saved, you were a freed person while well, you're a slave to Christ. So there's a, kind of a nice little contrast there. But he goes on to say, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. In other words, don't be people pleasers. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. And there's actually in this broader context, it also talks about those that were saved and maybe their spouse is an unbeliever. They, they need to remain in that relationship to try to sanctify that relationship. Sometimes health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preachers teach that when you're saved, your circumstances are going to get better. That's not true. I mean, does that happen? Yes. That's no guarantee. Mm-hmm. Your status with God changes dramatically. Mm-hmm. Your internal joy, your the equipping of God's spirit, many wonderful things are given to the believer. But if you're an auto mechanic before you're saved, you might be an auto mechanic afterwards. If you're a biology teacher before, you might remain a biology teacher after. Your circumstances don't necessarily change, but now you have a new mission. Now you have a vocation through which you are to be in service to Christ. Now within God's people, let's talk about the offices. So that's a general call to use your vocation, to leverage your vocation, no matter what it is, for Christ. That's for all Christians. But in the Word of God, there are some that will be called or appointed, if you will, to preach or lead God's people. That call isn't self-determined. It's given by God, and it's affirmed by God's people. So, for example, there's a, a local, there's a formal commissioning within the church For eldership, for example, it's called ordination. It's called the laying on of hands. In the New Testament, they would lay hands on. There's a formal commissioning. It wasn't just, well, I decided I'm going to be a pastor, hang up my shingle, and hope that people show up. Mm -hmm. No, there needs to be an affirmation from existing church leaders of a formalized call, if you want to call it that. Paul uh, said this to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.6, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. And this goes beyond just his, his spiritual gift, but his office, which is in you through the laying on of my hand. So Paul Paul's appointed on the road to Damascus. He's affirmed by the Jerusalem church. He's now appointing, he's affirming, he's laying on hands. He also sees his own ministry in these terms in chapter 1, verse 11, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher. The Jerusalem elders affirmed his appointment as a preacher, apostle, and teacher. God, of course, ultimately appoints us to ministry in Acts 4.11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. This is not to say that if, you don't, if you're not serving one of those fivefold ministry offices that you're some, some sort of a loser Christian. Frankly, I, I kind of, uh, I'll admit this, there's times when I, I long for that. There's times when I'd rather fade into the shadows, mm-hmm. kind of live my life behind the scenes in obscurity that I, I don't like the limelight. I don't, I don't like the fact that I have to preach on Sunday and then people talk about me in the afternoon. I don't like that. I, I don't like 
in my flesh the weight of responsibility to oversee God's church. It, it makes me uncomfortable if I think about it too much. But if it's a calling, you do it as unto the Lord. But that doesn't mean that the person who sits and listens and then goes and ministers to someone in the foyer or has a vibrant ministry to the elderly in nursing homes or whatever it might be is somehow lesser called. Mm -hmm. It's just that because uh, eldership, for example, has huge implications for the whole trajectory of the church, these are offices that we need to be extra special, extra careful, I should say, mm -hmm. um, in appointing people to, and there's a formal, there's a more formalized dimension to the laying out of hands. And then in 2 Timothy, we actually have the job qualifications. Interestingly, in 2 Timothy, where it outlines the job qualifications for elders and deacons, it's less about what you need to do, and it's more about who you need to be mm -hmm. and how you need to be functioning in other spheres of life to qualify for that role. So yeah, we're, to, we're called to preach, oversee, administrate, and rule the church as elders, but there's a whole lot longer list of qualifications that um, are, are outlined for us there. So that's what I mean by call. There's a, there's a general call to all people to, to leverage their vocation for Christ, but then in the formal offices of the church, there also needs to be a, uh, a, a process whereby the existing leadership affirms the call. Mm -hmm. So when a guy, the people that should make you nervous are the people that just start their own churches, their own ministries from scratch with no affirmation from anyone else. The Lone Ranger, there's plenty of them in the Christian church, largely because of the hyper-independence mindset in the West. If people that don't even go to church, but think they're, they're ministering to people, you have people with no regard for the local church, completely unbiblical. You have people that hop, skip, and jump from church to church. You have people that have these ministries that are not connected to anyone. They're not accountable to anybody. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're just um, uh, dishonoring the Lord. Uh, in that regard. They may have some gifts that if I could just harness them under the watchful care of elders would be a huge blessing. But always be, put your antennas up and don't trust people. Don't trust any church leader that's a lone ranger. Don't trust them. As I age, one of the commitments I've made is that even if I eventually end up being the oldest guy in the room, I will always put myself under a plurality of elders even if they're half my age, I'll always do that. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to be, be like the 75-year-old pastor that lords it over all the other guys because you know the, the, the closest one in age is, is 25 years my junior. I believe that God works through the collective wisdom of, mm -hmm. of um, godly men, and I will always put myself under uh, other leaders. Fortunately, I'm not there yet because on our elders council, probably half the guys are younger than me and half are older. <laughs> but the time will come, <laughs> potentially, when I'm the really, oldest guy yeah. in the room. And I want to always be under leadership, even if I'm over a lot of other people in other areas of my life. For sure. Yeah. 75 is a long way off, right? So, Yeah, but it'll come quick. It'll, yeah. Yeah. So you want to mention um, earlier that we want to discuss capacity and also leadership styles. So can you explain some of those for us? Capacity is something that is that is rarely discussed, but I think it's one of the most critical aspects of, of leadership. And where I see that in the scriptures is in um, Moses and Jethro, mm -hmm. where Moses was burning himself out. And we often focus on the principle of delegation there, which is great. But it's interesting when he delegates, he doesn't delegate an equal amount of influence to all of his lieutenants. Mm -hmm. Some are placed over groups, I believe, of 10 or 50 or 100. They all get different measurements, different allotments of influence. This is a, probably tied to their capacity, maybe their age. And each of us has capacity limits. We have capacity limits in every area of life. Now, here's one of the lies that parents tell kids all the time that guidance counselors tell kids, that universities advertising their various degree programs tell kids all the time. Here's the lie. You can be whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. The sky's the limit. That's not true. That's absolutely false. You don't tell a child you can be anything you want. What if a child's in a wheelchair? Oh, you can be an Olympic athlete. You can win the, the, the 100 meter. 
No, you will never win the hundred meter in a wheelchair. Uh, you could be a, a, a um, great writer, a great artist. What if you're not wired that way? Mm-hmm. We all have limits. It's better to help a child figure out their unique gifts and talents rather than pigeonholing them or saying they can just do whatever they want. Now, people often have more capacity than they think. But if you say to little Dylan, you can be and do whatever you want, and little Dylan grows up thinking that, he realizes, no, I can't. Talk about a major disappointment Mm -hmm. to, to him. We aren't all the same. We do not have all the same capacities. And you know what? That's totally fine. That's totally fine because your capacity isn't your identity. Let me say that again. Your capacity isn't your identity. You're not a honeybee. You're not a milking cow. What you produce is not your identity. Thank God, by the way, because eventually, even if you're a high-capacity person, it subsides and you die. Mm -hmm. So in that process, those final days or months of dying, are you less human? because you can't preach anymore, because you can't counsel anymore, because you you can't elder in your church, because you can no longer teach Sunday school? No, of course not. Your, your capacity is not your identity. So again, Jethro suggested that Moses should appoint people with different capacities to oversee various size groups. Other examples of this in scripture, there are kings and there are citizens. Not everyone's designed to be a king. When the selection process was taking place in Israel, there were... Not everybody was equally qualified. There was a spiritual aspect to that as Samuel was trying to seek God's will and guidance. But you know, one of the things they needed capacity-wise in ancient kings, military prowess. Saul was big. It's like physical size means something in ancient warfare. It doesn't so much anymore. You could be a very small person and fly a jet fighter. But in, in ancient warfare, physical capacity mattered. You're a big guy. You're strong. Let's make this guy the king. David was a successful king, obviously because God equipped him to do such, but he was also he was also a really good fighter. And kings went out on the battlefield, and they fought along with their troops. So that's a capacity thing. Mephibosheth, one of, um, uh, I'm, I'm going to say, Saul, no, Solomon's sons? Saul's son. Saul's, Saul's Jonathan's son. Jonathan's sons. Yeah, Jonathan's yes, sons. Right. Getting the generations mixed up there. Yep. He was dropped as yes. a, a baby yep. and was disabled. So in that culture, that he wouldn't have made a good king. Even though he was of the line, he maybe could have claimed the throne. His physical disability ma- meant that he had a capacity limit Mm-hmm. that would have made it difficult for him to be a military, a militaristic king in a culture that pretty much demanded that. Mm-hmm. So elders, elders, not everyone's an elder. That's fine. Elders are to overseer, rule. That doesn't mean the people they're ruling or overseeing are lesser Christians, but that's their task. Deacons are called to serve. So the point is, is that in the word of God, there's different capacities. It's fine. Now, I want to be, be very practical about this. I want to give people some analogies or paradigms from the real world maybe help them think about this the way the way i think about capacity is largely based upon the biblical model of the laos the diaconate and eldership in the local church so the laos the people the laity we call them the people that serve in a broad variety of of roles the diaconal roles, the people that lead, but they're more servant, practical, tangible leaders, the eldership, the presbyteroi, the episcopoi, those that oversee, that teach, that guard, the doctrine, discipline, direction, the crisis, the care, the counseling of the church. In, in the business world, we see that same model. We see the worker, we see the manager, and we see the owners slash entrepreneurs. In the military, we see the exact same thing. We have the enlisted soldier composed largely of men like, and there's ranks within them, but broadly speaking, there's the privates, the corporals, the the sergeants. These are the the men that are going to run across the battlefield, that are going to shoot the artillery. The the, the workers, the, the grunts, the guys on the ground doing the battle. And then you have the commissioned officers. You have the lieutenants, you have the captains, you have the majors. And then at the top of the heap, you have the admirals and the generals, those that are looking at the strategy, reading the maps. So, laos, diaconate, 
eldership. In the business world, workers, managers, entrepreneurs. In the military, the grunts, the commissioned officers, and the brass. We even see this in education. Mm -hmm. We have the teachers doing the work of educating, and then above them we have the deans, and then we have the chancellors, we have the principals of the institution that are overseeing the broad purposes of the educational institution. And I would say, if I were to pull numbers out of the air, about 90% of the people in any of those areas of life fall into the worker class. And that's what we need the most of. We need people to, we need more soldiers to run across the battlefield. We need more teachers to instruct students. We need um, more lay ministers in the church. Then we, then we do need generals. Mm -hmm. Then we do need admirals. Then we do need principals. So about 90% of the people are gonna fall into the category of workers, and then you're gonna maybe have five to maybe eight, 9% that are gonna be managers, and then you're gonna have maybe 1%, maybe less than that, that are gonna be the generals or the entrepreneurs or the bishops of the church. Mm -hmm. And again, that's fine. But here's the thing, because of our selfishness, people who are often at the top of the pyramid lord it over others and don't recognize or acknowledge their significance and their giftedness. And so people then naturally want to aspire up the hierarchy to areas of service they're not gifted for, that God has not designed them for. And then they frustrate people, they frustrate themselves, they're not fruitful. Mm -hmm. And we need to stop that. We need to acknowledge that most people are workers and we're, we're clapping them on, we're cheering them on. Pastors should honor their elders in public, honor their deacons, honor their staff. But we should also honor people that are cleaning our facilities. This is why, and I'll, I'll, I'll call him out again. This is why there's a man in our church, Ray, his name's Ray, who's an absolute hero of mine in a Christian faith because he's, he's, he's a consummate example of a man that without complaint and without pay, day after day, many years after his retirement, he could be sitting on the beaches of the Barbados or whatever, serves as unto the Lord cleaning our facility. Mm -hmm. And whenever I see him, he warms my heart. And there's many other people like that, serving in our kitchen, helping people in the cold weather to come into our parking lot and find parking spaces, cutting the grass on Saturdays, no one even sees them here. Mm -hmm. Those are absolute heroes in the Christian faith. And we need to let them know that. I am so, frankly, I'd rather be around them almost any day of the week than most pastors I know. Because those are men that I know and women that are serving as unto the Lord. And that's a wonderful thing. My own wife, who serves as a deaconess in our church, is a consummate servant. Now, she's on the staff of our church. And for some reason, because we're coming to the end of the year, I was talking to her about her, her salary or something like this a few days ago. She doesn't even know how much she gets paid. She has no idea. I, I asked her to guess. She, she, she was like way off. She has no idea what her salary is because she doesn't do it for her salary. That's not her purpose for being here. Mm -hmm. And we need more people like that in the Christian church. Everybody is blessed with that kind of that kind of a mindset. The second thing is, is not only is it carnal to try to be at the top of the heap, unless God has appointed you to that role, but let's suppose God has, um, has appointed you, you're gifted as a manager. You're, you're the person that you know, you're not necessarily a creative visionary leader. You're not necessarily uh, a, a high-level communicator of God's word, but you know systems, you know structures, you can manage, you can oversee events. And you are an A-plus in that area, but you're not content because you don't get enough attention. So you want to move up into the entrepreneurial rank, but that's not how you've been wired. For the rest of your life, you might be a C-minus. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd rather be an A-plus manager than a C-minus entrepreneur. I'd rather be an A-plus worker than a D-minus entrepreneur. But in the Christian church, when we often only pay attention or give applause to people that are at the top of the hierarchy, or to even when we talk about um, the, the history of war, we often name the generals. Oh, this is what the general... No, he just, he just laid out the plan. The guys that actually accomplished the purposes were the workers mm -hmm. that shed their blood in the tens of thousands to accomplish the objectives. Yep. But human nature is to give applause to the people that are at the top of the heap. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm not opposed to leadership, and we are told to honor people in positions of authority. But finding it as... 
as you're listening to, to me speak, just assess, how has God actually designed you? Are you more of a worker, manager, or entrepreneur? Once you answer that question, you plug in to that area of ministry in the church, and you you work towards becoming an A+, the best you can be in that area, and you will be fruitful, and you will be satisfied. Mm-hmm. But if you have this notion, well, I'm just a youth pastor, you know, I'm they call me the junior pastor. I'm sick and tired of it. I don't get the attention that the senior pastor gets. I want to be a senior pastor. And you aspire to that. Well, if you're not designed for that, you're going to be a disaster. Mm-hmm. You're, you're not going to be fulfilled. You're not going to be fruitful, as fruitful as you are. And you're going to, you're going to probably actually damage people. So learn to be content in the area of ministry that God has designed for you. I have seen men, Chris, aspire to be writers. They're just not good at it. Mm-hmm. It's like you're embarrassing yourself. I saw an article recently of a guy trying to be all theological. I thought, apart from the fact that I disagree with your premise, you're an embarrassingly poor writer. You're embarrassing yourself. Have you asked for feedback? I've seen men that aspire to be lead pastors or youth pastors that aren't cut out for that. They want to be authors that aren't cut out for that. Serve where God has gifted you. And you may be surprised that you end up in a role you never anticipated. But when you serve as unto the Lord in an area that's suitable to your capacity, you are going to be far more impressive to God and far more impressive to other mature believers. Serving in in a lowly role with high efficiency is better than serving in a high-ranking role with low efficiency. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't going to be some with high rank and high efficiency, but that needs to be affirmed by the people of God, and that generally comes after years and years and years of service and faithfulness and fruitfulness as unto the Lord. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by capacity. Know your limits and work within them as unto the Lord. Excellent. Yeah, so we had quite a few different things there that we covered in terms of leadership and discerning that, and hopefully this has been helpful for our listeners. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, for walking us through that. A quick announcement for our listeners. Our church here in Windsor has put out an album of music called All Our Hymns. The group is called Pursuit of Glory Music. And if you head to pursuitofglorymusic.com, you can actually find links there to, I think, our YouTube playlist, but it's also available on wherever you get music, Spotify, Apple Music, Google, wherever you get music, like this podcast. This podcast is available a lot of different places over on those platforms forms mentioned, the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, and we're also building out Beachhead Media, which we announced a couple of weeks ago, and we're excited for uh, some developments that we'll be able to announce more there soon. So, Aaron, you want to say something? Yeah, if I could just put a little plug in for that album as well. Uh, One of my pet peeves is uh, those that would say old music is good and new music is bad. That's absolutely farcical. And so every one of the songs that our uh, team has written is psalmic, in that it is directing our attention to God. It's not just music singing about God. It doesn't sound like epistle. It's not just talking about God. It's psalmic, and then it's helping the people of God to direct their affections toward God, to ascribe worth to him, to testify to his goodness, to invite other people to worship, which are all manifested in the Psalms. And each of the songs in that album called All Our Hymns is based upon a scripture passage. Mm -hmm. And so it's not only robustly biblical, but it's modern and it's singable, and I, and I would commend it to, to others to, to use in their um, corporate worship and also in their private worship. Excellent. So yeah, again, that's at pursuitofglorymusic.com. You can find that, and uh, we hope you'll tune in next week for another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock. Mm-hmm.